Uh, hello, this is Burn This Book, a banned books book club where we, Nicole and Eden, read a banned or challenged book each month and discuss its meaning, impact, and censorship to make it more accessible for all readers. This month's book is Bless Me Ultima by Rudolfo Anaya, which was published in... I don't have that handy right off the bat. Eden. I know. 1972. <laughs> oh, I sorry. Believe. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And it was published for uh, the uh, for adults, and it's been banned for, or it's been challenged for three decades. So since the beginning of when the Library Association started tracking banned books. Um, joining us today with the helpful information about the year <laughs> is Taylor Sorensen from Logan, Utah. Hello. Taylor, could you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I currently live in Logan, but I uh, grew up just east of Albuquerque in the east of mountains in a town called Edgewood. Uh, that distinction will become no, you know, relevant here shortly as we discuss the book more. But I first read this book as a freshman in high school, and. Uh, think about it from time to time. My younger brother, he also read it. So we, uh, make references to the golden carp on occasion. Um, and, uh, so we think about it and talk about it and it's, um, it was a good coming of age story to read, especially having grown up in, uh, the place where, you know, nearby where the story took place. So. That's really cool. I didn't realize that you grew up where the story took place. Also some background on Taylor. He is a attorney and he has a family and he has two children and he is a white male. Is that fair to say? Yes. I, I do okay. identify as a white male. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. We're just being, trying to talk about that because a lot of people are banning books to protect white children, <laughs> you know? So that I think that's important to say is like, I'm white, you're white. Eden is not. And, um, but our, but we all have a shared love. Like this book was really powerful for all of us, I would say. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay, sorry, Eden, you can get back to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll just jump right into the summary. Um, and each of us are going to give 30-second recap of uh, our own summary for this book. So uh, I think Nicole was the most recently. <laughs> yeah, I actually reread a lot of it um, this week just to like freshen up on it. And I haven't really read anything in between when I read it initially like a month ago versus now. So I'm pretty fresh. But the my summary is it's a story about a young boy in New Mexico who is like growing into like adult, like growing into his manhood at the age of like seven or eight. And he experiences like life's harshest things and has to reconcile belief in God and fate and all of those things with the help of like a very magical and beautiful mentor in this old lady named Ultima. That's okay. how I would summarize it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll give my, I think my, I am, I finished this a while ago, so let's, let's give this a try. So I, Bless Me Ultima is about a little boy who is, uh, it's a coming of age story about this boy mm -hmm. who um, discovers a, uh, 
a lot of contradictions in his life that he needs to try and figure out. And he's figuring it out with the help of the people around him, specifically the adults. Um, for example, Ultima, the title character, um, who's a, a shaman, versus the Catholicism that his mother so truly believes in and wants him to be a priest, and fighting that internal battle. But also, interestingly enough, his mother is the one who uh, vouches for Ultima the most. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, Taylor, what's your summary after you went after the two of us? Well, has to be super unique. <laughs> <laughs> so my summary of this book is it is the story of one person who has uh, multiple facets of his family pulling him in different directions. There's the Mares family that is their chief cardinal virtue is freedom. And there's the Luna family whose chief cardinal virtue is stability. And so you have the two families and then he has these two belief systems, Christianity and pagan belief. And the point of the story is Antonio's um, his ability to fuse those beliefs and fuse those family virtues into a new um, a new person himself. Yeah. So that's a really good summary. And I also think to like touch on that, it's important to know also he is Mexican American. Also, he didn't learn English until he goes to school, and that's a plot point in the beginning of the book, is his learning English and knowing both Spanish and English, and the book is in Spanish and English. And I, so, like, you have all these, like, two worlds all the time that he's writing and dealing with, which is really interesting. But what was fascinating to me was that there was no conflict with his, like, being, um, uh, like, Mexican-American which is what I would have assumed as a white person reading a book about a predominantly Mexican community in New Mexico. It was like, I would have assumed that that would be most of the conflict, but it wasn't, it was all religion. And, um, and then the stability versus freedom thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was much more personal and intrinsic and wasn't. Yeah. That was fascinating. Right. Was and I, I think, you know, there's an interesting thing to be said about New Mexico there. So having grown up there, yeah, um, there are, um, as far as I know, Caucasian Americans are not the majority in New Mexico. It is a plurality state. So there are large numbers of Native Americans um, by percentage, I think, only surpassed by maybe Alaska and Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So there's a large number of Native Americans there who still live in their ancestral lands um, in their Puebla, in the Pueblos, um, which, and then there are large numbers of Hispanic Americans, many of whom, especially in the area that we're talking about in this book, have been living there since before Mexico was a country. So they mm-hmm. receive land grants from the Spanish government that are hundreds of years old, o- older than the United States, and they've been living there for years and years and years. And then you have the Caucasian Americans who are a later arrival, you know, after the Mexican American War and the Civil War and you know, mainly after World War II when Caucasian Americans really started to move into New Mexico. So it's really a pluralist state, unlike any other that I've been in in the United States, that 
Um, Spanish is an official language in the state of New Mexico. English and Spanish are both co-equal official languages of the state. And um, by virtue of the longstanding, you know, history of the Hispanics living in in the state, I mean, it's it's not really the same, you know, as Utah, which was largely unpopulated aside from Native Americans, most of whom have been moved onto small reservations, and the population of them is very small, and they were all replaced by um, Northern European uh, descent people. But, yeah, I mean, Santa Fe uh, was founded before Jamestown, before Plymouth. And uh, it's the oldest state capital in the U.S. Um, Albuquerque was founded around about the time of, in the, it's in the 1700s. Um, so the cities that we're dealing with here are older than anywhere else, including uh, New England, where you're from, Eden. So, and that's missed by a lot of people, that the history here is it's much older than people are used to in most of the contiguous United States. That is a really beautiful point. I've never, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Me neither. Yeah, that is fascinating. Do you want to get into more specifics about the plot? Just so listeners, assuming we have listeners, will <laughs> know what's going on. Like, are you asking me? Yeah. Specifically? Should we do that? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe we should. Let's just do it real fast. Okay. So. This, and correct me if I'm wrong. So it starts with a little boy, Antonio. He's like seven years old. He is about to start going to school. And his um, he, it's, it's right after World War II. So soldiers are starting to return from Europe and the Pacific. And his three older brothers were both fighting in World War II. They have not returned home yet. And so there's a little bit of tension there. His family are devout Catholics. His mother, though, is from the farming community and his father is like the cowboy community. So there's that freedom stability thing. And they're both kind of projecting their like their desires onto Antonio. And he's very young and he feels that pressure of what is he going to do? Is he going to be a priest and live in the farming community or is he going to go be a cowboy? Um, and so he's dealing with both of those things and that they welcome this older woman from, I, didn't, I was confused. Is she from his father, the cowboys? community i think she, or is she from the farming community i think she's from the cowboy community right i don't know if the from yeah. what i understand she's you know it's kind of unclear because she travels around she you know has obviously spent time with the cowboys because they hold her in great esteem for you know her healing abilities but also the um the people in puerto de la luna they seem to like uh -huh. her as well so um, she, you know, kind of like she inhabits the physical and spiritual world. She, she is moving between these two communities. So maybe yeah. that's a metaphor that I've missed or something. I don't know. No, I no, think, I think you're, you're right. right. And yeah. And I love the, I, um, yeah, I can't help but think of Avatar, the last airbender <laughs> <laughs> while talking about this book too, because you're right. Ultima is very much someone who's straddling the the two worlds, mm -hmm. and Tony kind of becomes her um, her uh, descendant mm -hmm. in that sense. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so she is welcomed into their home because she's getting old and she and Tony have this very spiritual connection. He has a lot of visions and she understands them and she was actually there at his birth. And so like she sees that there's a spiritual thing inside of him and that he's very sensitive to the spiritual realm. And so she kind of like takes him under his wing. During this time, he starts going to school. His brothers come home. There's conflicts. They leave. They don't live up to his parents' expectations. There's all these things that happen in, like, a normal home. But also, he witnesses, like, three different deaths. The death of a, um, of, like, a guy who was clearly dealing with PTSD from the war. And he shot somebody, I believe. And then he gets shot. And that's in the very beginning of the book. And then a death of the town drunk who actually turns out to be one of the more moral characters in the book. And who's actually watching out for everybody. And then, um, and he like witnesses these like murders. They're not just like people just casually dying. They're definitely murdered. And, um, and it's intense. And he's just very young trying to understand that. And he also, and one of his like good friends um, drowns near the end of the book. So he has like these three major deaths. And then he also witnesses all of these different things. All while going to catechism. So he's asking these questions about mortality about to God and anticipating receiving all these answers once he has his first communion. He doesn't receive those answers, but he feels like he has these like spiritual awakenings when he's in nature and when his friends introduce him to like other different gods that are not the Christian God and when he's around Ultima. And Ultima, it's never answered if she's a witch or not. And I don't think Tony ever knows, but some people call her a witch. Other people just call her a healer. And so there's like, she's kind of She's a confusing little character in all of this, too. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good enough kind of understanding of the book. So people under, like kind of can see. It's, it's compared to Huckleberry Finn in that this young boy is going on like this pretty intense adult journey and asking all these really big questions about mortality and ethics and morality all within like a span of like two years of his life. And then he's a man, even though he's still, like, eight or nine years old by the end of it. And that's very much like Huckleberry Finn, where Huckleberry is, like, has made decisions about slavery and ethics and morality by the time it's over after his big, like, journey with Jim. So that's why they're compared to each other a lot, which is interesting to me. And they're both banned a lot, too, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. Okay. Did I miss anything out crucial that you would like to include, Taylor? Um, I don't think so. I think that, um, well, I don't know. I th- I just think that there's, you got the major plot points right, and I the one of the th- reasons why I like this book is the more you think about it, the more you find, and sure. the more yeah. connections that you can make. And I mean, even, um you can make connections to literature. So this book reminds me a lot of uh, Cien Años de Soledad or one, 100 Years of Solitude, uh, which is written in Colombia by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And we recently saw an iteration of that in the movie Encanto for those people who have seen that movie recently um, about you know magic and um, in this sort of Latin environment. Uh, it reminds me of pop culture like Star Wars where, you know, half of Tony's family is his uncle Ben and Aunt Beru living on Tatooine and just want to be farmers. And then he has, you know, the other half that's like the Skywalker half, the one that wants to be free and go be a Jedi and go be, you know, a cowboy. 
and he has the spiritual guide show up, an old person who knew his family back in the day. She happens to be a woman. So this, you know, it calls back Star Wars. It calls back, you know, Harry Potter. So because all these stories, the hero's journey, they're all the same. Um, They all have the same archetypes. And so, um, you know, in this case, that archetype is filled by Ultima and he has to navigate, you know, that call to adventure, the call to, you know, be freed on the plains and move to California like his dad wants or no, stay and grow, you know, beans and chilies at home. So uh, and both have their virtues and both have their place. But I, you know, this, the more you think about this book, the more you see it relate to other pieces of pop culture as well. Yeah, that's crazy. I never thought about all of those things. Yeah. And, and me just bringing up Avatar The Last Airbender, yeah. you bringing up Huckleberry Finn, just like, this is, is this the uh, the hub book that like everything is surrounding? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I love what you said about, um, ah, dang it. I lost it. So it'll come back when it's, a, when it is important. Cause you Must said, not have been that good. But. It was really good, Taylor. <laughs> everything you said is like, oh, Taylor, can we just, can you just want to be a part of this podcast all the time? Um. But you said something about, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But a point that has come is like also the fact that this book is very timeless. I It didn't matter that it was set right after World War II. It could have been set two years ago. It could have been set 500 years ago. And it like the story wouldn't have had to change. Mm-hmm. I think it also helps that Catholicism is so old. Because <laughs> it really goes into that. But like it's a very timeless story. It's not, it doesn't need to be about you know post-war that's what's crazy is like all the things that I thought would it would be about when I realized it was about world after world war ii I was like none of those things were brought in and it wasn't about like stereotypical American issues it was much deeper and much like yeah so yeah the hero's journey another thing that I like about this is that um Mm -hmm. and you can tell that Rudolph Onaya is um you know really trying to tap into the his heritage of being a mestizo, being a mix and, you know, a huge part of Mexican heritage and Mexican American heritage is the, uh, is being a mestizo. And if you don't know what a mestizo is, it's a person who is a European and an Indian mixed. So Mexico kind of built their whole national identity on being the mix of Spaniards and Native Americans. And so their national the national identity of Mexico is built up in fusing the two cultures of Native America and Europe, but also it extends to Catholicism and pagan religions. So there's a term called syncretism, and syncretism is when two religions borrow off of each other and kind of form a new religion. And in many cases, people think that that kind of happened in Mexico. So the conquistadors arrived and, you know, the natives all had their different gods and, you know, Catholicism really was kind of a great fit for that in that, you know, there's already a system of, of saints who have their own different little domains and, but there's one main God that you worship. And then there's, you know, this mother goddess type situation with the Virgin and that she intercedes for you. That same sort of structure already existed in native America. And so it was, kind of an easy thing to say to, you know, Indians who 
you know, who are just living their lives to just say, you know, look, yeah, we get that you believe in Tonantzin, who's this mother goddess, you know, just, you know, from now on, just call her the virgin. And guess what? Some guy just had the virgin appear to him in Guadalupe. So just the virgin of Guadalupe, she cares about you. And so, you know, syncretism is a huge part of Mexican culture. And when people from Mexico came to New Mexico, they brought that with them. And so this situation that Antonio is in where he, you know, sees Catholicism as, you know, this, it's the center of his town. His parents want him to be a priest and he has this huge pull towards, you know, the European part of his identity. And then his friends start, you know, letting him know about the golden carp who they believe will drown the world and has supernatural powers and predates you know, European arrival and so forth. So, you know, that little struggle in Antonio's mind mirrors the same struggle that has gone on writ large over the history of Mexico and the history of a European expansion into the new world. So that's a cool side note that's not super relevant, but it does, you know, pull into, you know, Antonio's struggle and it, it's a microcosm. His struggle is a microcosm of the world. I think yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Super I think relevant. I don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> super relevant. Yeah, because <laughs> one of one of my takeaways that I had from this was being like uh, an Asian American, being mm-hmm. a daughter of immigrants who moved here, and very much having Hong Kong encapsulated into my parents, um, and having that be my backdrop for growing up in a very white town in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, also like Tony wanting to appeal to the the whiter population there um, while also staying true to my Chinese-ness, mm-hmm. um, which I only, I feel like I'm only getting a hang of now at 29 years old. Like, just back in November, I decided that I'm going to pick up my, because technically English is my third language, but it's my most fluent language. But back in November, I was like, I'm going to pick up Cantonese again because I want my daughter to have, to, to know Cantonese and like be in tune with her, um, her heritage as well. And it makes me think a lot about biracialness. Mm-hmm. And like, there are things about, I, like, I know most parents, there are a lot, a, lot, a lot of things about their children that they're never going to understand. But I think biracialness brings another level to that too um and I just hope my experience being a an immigrant in the United well a child of immigrant in the United States could help me be an ultima for my mm. daughter in trying to figure out the duality of the world of mm. like oh my dad's white my mom's Chinese what does that make me and no one knows what I look like like and I'll pro- she'll probably get questions like, what are you? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, an interesting personal application of this book um, that goes, but yeah, right in line with what you're talking about, Taylor. That's really beautiful. I also think like the, the points you made, A, I think are super relevant. Also, you're so good at talking, Taylor. That was really lovely to listen to. I'd like to listen. Probably why he's an attorney. Yeah, yeah probably you're, why you're, you're an attorney. Her. You're probably really good at your job, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> but like... <laughs> But, like, um, 
yeah, I'd love to just have you like lecture and I just want to sit there and listen because yeah. that was so interesting. And even though that is an ex- a unique experience to Mexico and to New Mexico, like just as a person living here in this country, like I've been struggling over the last two years. I think the pandemic really brought on a lot of like religious questions for me and I'm a deeply religious person. I think I'm more like Antonio's mom than anyone else in the book and that I'm like yeah well there's answers and you just do it and it's so good and it's so and like I really hold on to my faith really intensely but there have been so many things that like have just been irreconcilable for me and so reading this book I was like oh I have a friend who understands this like Antonio still desperately wants to find those answers within Catholicism and it's not but he also acknowledges that like a lot of his answers are within are like found through the golden carp and found through the mysteries of Ultima and like her healings were things that the priest could not do. And I just like, it was so nice to read that and to realize like, it's totally okay to have those feelings and to be in between those spaces. And what was the term you used Taylor that like the dual, this, I'm not going to say it. Cause I don't think I know it. The merging of the, yeah, the merging of the, it's called syncretism syncretism yeah I think that like I think my therapist is actually trying to help me work on that sort of idea on a personal level of just how to have these two things be true like the what's the other way of saying it or maybe this is not even the same idea but just having like two truths be true even if they are even if they counter one another and I think like this book was just like really therapeutic for me. I loved it because I really am going through that right now. And I'm trying to figure out how I can still honor my, my deeply important religious beliefs while also anticipating and expecting more and also embracing truth and other things that I'm getting from the outside and honoring the other spiritual experiences I'm having. And I think like just as human beings in this global world, like, not to undermine your experience, Eden, at all as a daughter of immigrants. Well, I also to say you immigrated here as a young child too, though. Uh, that's a good point. So you've got a double thing <laughs> there going on too. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to step on your your narrative, but <laughs> you've got. You should give yourself a little more credit for that's all the true. journeys that's you've true. gone through. But um, like I'm always trying to figure out also my history because my family's Catholic, my extended family's Catholic, and I'm always trying to balance that. And also, like, with what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, like, I, I, my family is Eastern European and is definitely being affected right now. And I have family that still live in Eastern Europe. And, like, just trying to understand what I'm accountable for and what I'm holding on to with me being an American. But also, I have these roots and this culture and these traditions that do matter to me. And, like, I don't know. It's just, like... It, it feels very frustrating and confusing, but this book was like really, it just was so beautiful because it handled all of those things so well. And his issues with death were so good. Ugh. Because I feel like everyone's dying around me all the time. And this book was like really relatable for me where I was like, yeah, how do I reconcile that? And that was like a really, it was just a beautiful, I think it's just, I wish every young child would read that. I wish every teenager could read this because I think it would be very helpful mm-hmm. to create a healthy narrative about religion and about social and cultural expectations. Yeah. And you know, one of the reasons why this book is good also is that, you know, it shows that, so, I mean, Antonio, he's from a very small insular community 
you know, when compared to the world we live in now. So like, you know, Puerto de la Luna is kind of like a stand-in for Santa Rosa, which at the time had at most a couple thousand people living there. And, you know, he's, you know, New Mexico is still not a huge place. (laughs) There's not very many people that live there. It's, it's like the fifth largest state by area, but it's got to be in the low, you know, the high forties as far as like number of people that live there. So it's very sparsely populated. The town he lives in is very small, very insular. Most everyone there except for Florence and red or Catholic. There's like a couple Protestants. So most everyone there kind of has a shared history, but even then Antonio still has these issues of coming to grips with his belief system. He still has issues coming to grips with his family, even though, you know, from our perspective, you're like, oh, well, they're all Hispanic Americans. How hard could it be? But he still is coming to grips with these different sides of his family, even though they may be ethnically the same. They're not, their value system is different. And so, you know, even in this small insular community, even if you live in Provo, Utah, or you live in Puerto de la Luna, you still have to come to grips with your belief system and you still have to understand that, You know, there are parallel truths. There are multiple places that you can gain spiritual understanding and growth. And there are multiple places that you can understand in a deeper sense what's going on in the world. And so I think that it remains applicable today for that reason. Because as the world grows, that only becomes even more applicable of trying to navigate the shoals of competing ideologies and um you know there's evil people in the world like uh tenori or whatever his name is this bar bar owner um you know there's there's evil people in the world that you have to navigate and there's very good people in the world and there's morally gray people and most of the people in the world are morally gray and so navigating these relationships even if it is in a small community or in a large community like we live in now um it's it's relevant and it's something that people need to struggle with their entire life. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my favorite scene out of the whole book was when the kids are playing confession and they're, they're making Tony be the priest and they're all confessing their sins to him and like piling all their clothes on him and like all the clothes I think you can uh-huh. read into as like a uh, symbolism for sin and him feeling burdened by it. But like, everyone forcing Florence to confess to Tony and Florence just straight up saying, I have nothing to confess. Mm-hmm. Um, even though like from the outside, it seems like he's very sinful because he doesn't believe in God because God took away his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Tony in that moment, he like looked at Florence and he says, he has nothing to confess. And like, he truly believes that. And I truly see that. Mm-hmm. And I, he doesn't need to confess anything and like the kids all kind of gang up on Tony after that um, they beat him up they beat him up like yeah I was it trying just to keeps going and going and I was, I was like, like oh my oh, gosh his chest um, and like we, we talked about how there wasn't really an answer at the end but there is like a slight answer at the end and um and it's it's a uh, sympathy and empathy mm-hmm. for each other and I thought that was an interesting conversation that Tony da had with his dad. Um, uh, 
and how his dad talks about how the magic in the world comes from sympathy and understanding each other. And, like, I think that confession scene was, like, like a the part where it clicked for me, where it's like, oh, Tony understands. Tony has sympathy mm-hmm. for Florence, and like, sees where he's coming from, and that's why he's able to, like, even with a black-and-white Catholicism background, he's able to... Um, What's that word? The word that Taylor taught us? No. Oh. Because <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm so nervous to say it. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to make a fool of myself. <laughs> Which word are you looking for? Um, not a compromise. What reconcile? Is, reconcile. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, he's able to reconcile those two seemingly contradictory yeah. things. Can I share the quote that you were you're yeah. talking about yes, from the dad? He's talking to Tony. It's near the end of the book. And um, he says, understanding comes with life. As a man grows, he sees life and death. He is happy and sad. He works, plays, meets people. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to acquire understanding. Because in the end, understanding simply means having a sympathy for people. Ultima has empathy for people, and it is so complete that with it, she can touch their souls and cure them. And Tony says, that is her magic. And then the father says, I and no magic, no greater magic can exist. Um, and, like, it's just, like, it's so good because it's such a simple solution. And with the tech, with the context that Taylor provided, it, like, really adds a lot of beauty to this. Of, like, this is also, like, a culture who... Like, there's a lot of different communities that are are re- working through with that, like, these these parallel things, these complicated feelings. And, like, the whole mysticism aspect is also fascinating in Latin American culture that I didn't understand at all about. I feel like I'm now just, like, learning that it's a thing. <laughs> um, and so, like, this was a really cool – it was just – yeah, I really loved it. Ten out of ten. Taylor, do you have any thoughts? I know that was all over the place. <laughs> Would recommend. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I agree with you. I think that it's a great story of, you know, that some that anybody, including someone from some random town in eastern New Mexico on the plains, can grow to understand people who are not like them, and. Mm-hmm understanding people and understanding where they're coming from helps you love them. And if you love them, then you are able to treat them how, you know, most belief systems believe that you should treat other people kindly Mm -hmm. and with kindness and generosity. And, you know, as, you know, Antonio gets to know Narciso, the town drunk, he figures out that he's actually not the town drunk, but he's actually just a, a really good guy and then even the person who you know who's shot at the very beginning he figures out he understands more about you know the fact that he was changed by the war and his dad who he is kind of standoffish with at the start who is always angry that he doesn't get to go to california he grows to understand that his father misses his freedom and you know there's he has interaction after interaction with people who he gets to know and he comes to understand what they're going through and then he comes to love them and because he comes to love them then he understands and treats them with kindness and with dignity and so 
I think that's a lesson that we can all take away from this book is that the more you understand someone, then the more you love them and the more you are able to reach out that hand of friendship. And yeah, I mean, not everybody's going to have their friends pile all their proverbial sins on them and tell them, you know, (laughs) to forgive or not forgive, you know, somebody, no one, most people aren't going to go through that experience, but you can all, we can all have those personal moments where you come into contact with someone you don't like, or you, or it comes from a different belief system or is a different race than you, or is of a different, you know, religion or political persuasion or whatever. And as you come to understand them, you will come to love them and then you'll treat them differently. I love that. Could I add in one more point that I want to touch on real quick before, because we're also over time. So let us know when you want us to stop Taylor. But, um, one more point is just that like, there's a, uh, the resilience factor in this book was like unbelievable. The way Ultima explained to Tony about all these deaths and like how to handle these hard things that they, if they build into your strengths, she said something about like building into your strength or like something like that. And that was so amazing. And like that changed how I look at hardship is that it's just, it's about, um, I want to find the quote. I can't find I can't find it. I'm looking for it. But that's another piece to this that I think is really well worth thinking about and talking about, especially if this is a classroom in a school, is like, how does Tony cope with these hard things? And, um, and is that a good coping mechanism? Because, like, gosh, I think he's coping so well. He's leaning on other people, and then he's also being taught that these things can help make him stronger. And, like... I, I would love to have that taught in a school setting and because when I taught high school for one year, a lot of my kids were dealing with massive amounts of death. I mean, it was during the pandemic and one of my students lost both of their parents. And so like, yeah, so they they were dealing with real things and to be able to like to take them to a book where someone else was also dealing with that kind of like questioning of mortality at all times and learning how to cope. And there's just like such good clear examples that Ultima gives him of like what you like what are you gonna do about this (laughs) how are you gonna handle this and her comforting and her sympathy and her allowing him time to mourn and then also time to like get in touch with the land and like develop other skill sets after he saw his friend die like there's just so many amazing little tools that I've never read in such a really well like this just was well done it was very well done and I, my book had, like, a little introduction of Rudolfo, mm-hmm. and he said he has, like, no experience in writing at all. Yeah, this was his first book. This was his first book ever, and yeah. he just, like, edited it with his wife. Yeah. He was like, what? It took him, like, five years or something? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that's a good, both of your comments is a good segue into, um... Yeah, it's so unfortunate because this book teaches so many great things about understanding and love and learning how to navigate different worldviews than your own. Um, and yet, it is frequently challenged. <laughs> why do you think it's why challenged? Do you, why do you think, <laughs> yeah, why do you guys think that? Well, you know, first off, like having lived through Harry Potter being released in the United States and everything and like... <laughs> people freaking out about witchcraft and this happened in the 2000s mm-hmm. let alone 
1970s. So number one, you know, the one number one thing that I'm sure it's been challenged on is, you know, allusions to uh, the curandera, the supernatural, the, mm. you know, using means aside from Western medicine to help people cope with problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good guess. That's a good guess. My guess is like, cause I didn't even think about that, but you're probably right. And I think I'm just underestimating how afraid people are of like stories about that kind of stuff. But, um, my other guess was like, there was a part in it that I was like, I couldn't tell if it was during the prayer thing. And I think it's cause I was looking for stuff to be like, why would I ban this book? <laughs> um, and if I wasn't looking at it, I wouldn't have interpreted things like that. And I even had like my boyfriend read a section to be like, is this what happened? I couldn't tell if there was a part where, like, Horse was masturbating mm. when he was talking about his sins. Like, I, I got confused, but I also think I was looking at it from the framework of, like, I am trying to find out why this book is evil. Yeah. I don't know if I can But it was that. unclear. Yeah. So I feel, <laughs> I feel like I was just like... Right, there is that section when they talk about their sins that they all... You know, multiple people say, oh, I saw somebody down by the river with their girlfriend yeah. or whatever. And, you know, and they do use the F word in that part. So maybe that's why they it could be banned. I don't know. That feels like a massive stretch to me. Yeah. I wrote three things. Witches, prostitution, and swearing in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, why was it banned? So let's look this up right now yeah. in real time. Taylor, like legitimately, we the reason why we want this to be a surprise is because it's always shocking. Like we found out why the Bible has been banned, and that blew our minds because it was not why we would have thought it would be banned. Yeah, <laughs> so that's pretty fun. Okay, so here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh oh, this has a timeline. Oh, love it. Okay, go on. So the the library started uh, tracking in the nineties. So mm-hmm. nineteen ninety two, California challenged it for. Many profane and obscene references, vulgar Spanish words, and glorifies witchcraft and death. Whoa! (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah, you both nailed it. I was way off. Okay, so that was in 1992 in California. 1996 in Texas. um, The book was too violent. Hmm. 1999 in California... It was removed from a school for violence and profanity that might harm students after being chosen. Wait. Oh, after the book was chosen because the student population is 80% Hispanic. So So they're trying to protect the Hispanic students. Strange. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 2005 in Colorado. Ooh. Uh, Represent. That's where I'm from. Yeah. Let's see. The book was removed from reading lists, and parents asked to burn it. Oh, my gosh. The book was removed after two parents complained about profanity. He gave all copies of the books to the parents who tossed them in the trash. The superintendent later apologized after students organized an all-day sit-in at the school gym. See, that's what Colorado always delivers. Every time there's a book banning, the students have a sit-in. It's just the way it is. Uh, Well, it seems like it's always, like, three parents, two parents one parent it's always seems to be this really you know the vocal minority who says that these books should not be read 
yeah. what we've learned is usually they haven't read it. Like, they've read, like, excerpts or they've heard things about a book. But they yeah. usually have not actually read it. That's usually the people who are banning stuff. Which they is haven't read it with full understanding or sympathy. There you go. Yeah. Without the magic. Without the magic. But that's the reason why they were banning in the first place. Yeah, because they didn't want the magic. Didn't want the magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, 2000, it was born, uh, banned in, or challenged in New York because the book is full of sex and cursing. Full of sex? I wouldn't say it was. I wouldn't say that either. Uh, 2008 in California, removed by the superintendent for being profane and anti-Catholic. Whoa. Where was this band? California. That was also in California? Yeah. Was that in like a... Okay. Interesting. That was a public school? Um, Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. And then 2013 in Idaho, the uh, superintendent banned it for profanity and alleged inappropriateness. I love the alleged. Yeah. (laughs) We're not sure. We're not sure. (laughs) Apparently this book is inappropriate, so I'm going to ban it. That's really interesting. Um, I feel like as a teenager, the the content that I was digesting outside of school, like Gossip Girl and garbage like that, was like way Way more. more damaging to my psyche and morality than... Way more full of sex. (laughs) <laughs> allegedly book. allegedly yeah. <laughs> yeah and it didn't even come with the catholic guilt so it's <laughs> i know <laughs> i know i know and the thing about this book too is that i genuinely feel like anyone who ascribes to any religion could identify with the questions that antonio was asking yeah. like yes it was very specific to catholicism but like even me as an lds person like i genuinely identified with a lot of those questions where I was like I don't feel you know and it was like such a healthy a healthy investigation for myself Mm -hmm. and like I I don't know I just feel like I don't know I feel like if you're reading it in good faith it could be a very powerful friend for you definitely and if you're reading it in bad faith of course it's going to be stressful (laughs) awesome well, thank you, Taylor. And any last thoughts before we close out and introduce our next book? Yeah. I don't think so. I just think that... Do you have any other thoughts, Taylor? <clears throat> yeah, I just think yeah. that, you know, for this book is for anyone who has more than one facet to their family or has more than one facet to their religious experience and anybody who, you know, comes into contact with opposing views. So, in short, it's for everyone. Um, I think that anybody could read this and pull something useful out of it to apply to themselves. Absolutely. Oh, I have actually one more question for you, Taylor. When you were reading it in high school, how did you digest it? Like, what was your experience? Do you remember your initial reaction in reading it in high school? Yeah, my initial reaction is, you know, (sighs) different than after having a college education. (laughs) So... (laughs) You know, you know, reading it when I was in high school, I focused a lot more on the surface of the the actual narrative. So, you know, the fact that there's a gold, a big giant golden fish was really strange. And the fact that, you know, there's people getting shot left and right. And then the big ball of hair, you know, the Im- the images on the surface of the narrative really stuck in my brain and were... Mm-hmm funny at the time often. Um, and I didn't really take a lot of time to 
pull it into my daily life. But I do quote to my younger brother all the time, like, you know, <laughs> like this is what the golden carp wants or like, Oh, I'm meant to be, <laughs> I can't do this. I'm meant to be a priest, you know? We, so we, we joke about this book cause we've both read it and we both read it in high school. But as far as like <laughs> applying it as in this more deep way, uh, I didn't, I didn't get that until I was, was older and read it just recently. So, but you weren't like offended by it in high school. You weren't like, Oh, this is questioning my Christian faith. No, I wasn't offended by it. I, I, I didn't see it as anti-religion. I, you know, yeah. because at the end he doesn't he doesn't disparage his Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and he doesn't disparage the golden carp. He just says at the end he's like, oh well, you know, maybe I need to form a new religion, and his new religion is just pulling into his you know religious experience all these different you know beliefs that he mm-hmm. has. So. I didn't I didn't see it as allegedly disparaging Catholicism, but I'm not Catholic, so I can't speak yeah. to that. That's fair. That's fair. Well sweet. Thank you again, Taylor, for your for your time and your insight. Um Seriously, you're such a treasure of a person. Honestly, Taylor, like I was so happy that you responded to Eden on our Instagram story. And like all my memories of you are just as such a lovely, easy to be with person and i am just really jazzed that you we've crossed paths again yeah you're very kind thank you (laughs) well it's true though you are one of those you're yeah and i just remember you being from new mexico and me just being obsessed with that so (laughs) thank you it's new mexico is a cool place it's definitely underrated i would say Uh, so there's there's a lot of cool things and there's a lot of cool history there that kind of goes unnoticed because it's you know, in the middle of nowhere and um, overshadowed by Texas and California and so forth. So there's a lot going on there. And I would encourage anyone who has the chance to visit and so I'll plug for my home state. I love that. I hope you end up moving back there someday. Maybe. I don't know if you want to. I'm not going to pressure you and your wife and your kids to do that. But We were going to do our girls trip there last year. Yeah, I'm obsessed with Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's like my favorite place. Because I'm an old man who has arthritis. Or, or a young boy in Newsies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a young newspaper boy yeah. who's trying to unionize. And no one's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a movie that radicalized our generation towards, like, pro-unions. Disney did not know. that They should have been banning that if they wanted us to be a capitalist. And the fact that that same guy went on to play Batman, radical change. Oh, so many, so many things. That should be in the new podcast is the journey of Jack Kelly to Bruce Wayne. <laughs> we like walk through each of his movies. And the interim, the interim stop as uh, Teddy from Little Women. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. No one ever brings that up, but that is one of his best roles. Oh, so good. So good. He was so charming in that. I still have to see that one. You've never seen that I've Little Woman? I've never seen that one. Ugh. Oh. I mean, and you're from I can't believe that you're from Connecticut and you have not seen that version. Thank you. It's yeah. Yeah. speaking of or, you know, speaking of Connecticut and Orchard House. Yeah. That's yeah. that's like no. Oh, it's in Massachusetts, okay. <laughs> but still my wife my still, my Connecticut wife is correcting me that Orchard House is in Massachusetts. But it's still in New it's still in New England though. So Eden has no excuse and I have no excuse. it's also Winona Ryder, Sarah Sar- yeah, Sarah Sarandon. Is that her name? Susan, Susan Sarandon. Ooh. 
Kristen Dunst is in it. Claire Danes is in it. Um, I feel like there's other really famous people that we're not noting, but what's the name of Joe? Uh, she's a Winona Ryder. She yeah, yeah, Winona Forever, and also um, Gabriel Byrne. He is amazing. I can't think of anything else he's in, but he's in that movie. It's just like it's the perfect Little Woman. This the new Little Woman did not hold a candle. Sorry. Well, for starters, the new Little Women had no American women. <laughs> yeah, and they had this. They had the guy playing oh, from Better Call Saul playing She's the dad. Canadian. So I, he seemed out of place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. actually true. Also, it was very confusing. The only way I knew what timeline we were in was by Amy's bangs. Other yeah. than that, it was like so massively confusing. It was like, what is going on? We're going in the future and the past. It was just like too. Although too... I will say, the new Little Women, the German professor guy. Way more appealing, wow. makes way more sense that she would be into him than the old one. The old one, he's like okay. wicked old. He was, but also the older I'm getting, the more I'm like, I get it. But as a kid, I did not get it. But the older I am, I'm like, interesting. He's got that gray hair. He's kind of got something like stable about him. He plays the violin. He's got lots of books. Yeah. He's just is like but kind of has like a almost thirty year old woman, and not that's as true. A and also, I have to give them credit. Maybe in the eighteen hundreds, they aged really fast. Like he could have been twenty one in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like the maybe he had typhoid as a boy, and it just maybe. Happened. Well, it's like the Golden Girls thing. They were like in their fifties, and they look like they're in the eighties. Yeah, they were like in their fifties. Like their characters were in their fifties, and the actors were also like very young. Wow. But modern fifty-year-old women are like the Sex in the City cast. Yeah, that's yeah. I've been seeing that meme. That's why I bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just we're aging differently, okay? So your thirty is really a twenty. So you're very young, Taylor, and I will be as well. I will be. Yeah, young. you know, it's young. it's like Parks and Rec where he's saying, you know, scientists believe the first man to live to one hundred and fifty has already been born, and I believe I am that man. So. <laughs> So good. Oh my gosh. On that note. On that note. I uh, think we'll close out. Yeah, we'll close out. And um, our next book will yeah. be Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Yeah. Which has been challenged uh, for two decades. Over the two, over two decades. I, yeah. So we're excited to dig into Judy Bloom because yeah. I didn't know any of her books were ever challenged. Oh, she's like one of the like her really? and like Toni Morrison. I do not know much about Judy Bloom. That's for another another talk, another time. If you want to join us for that, Taylor, you are welcome. If your wife wants to join us for that, she is welcome. If your kids want to read it, they are welcome. <laughs> I would say it's probably too old for <laughs> his kids. Not we, just we don't know level, their kids though, but... but we don't know them. They might be like <laughs> very much ready for that conversation. Okay. Um, I'm going to end this recording. Thank you so much. And I will. Yep. Burn This Book is produced by us, Nicola Corin and Eden Wen. Music written by me, Nicola Corin, and produced and performed by my dad, Frank. <laughs>